The following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my pleasure to preach God's word for you this morning. Um, I'm going to pray. We're going to get that. I sound weird. I'm going to get that figured out. And uh, we're going to jump into it. So, Father, we come before you this morning in need of you. Every person in this room is in need of you, whether they feel that need, whether they sense that need or not. You are what is holding our universe together. You are what is holding our mind together, our soul together. As the song that we sang today said, we have this great anchor of the soul that goes behind the veil. That's Jesus. Jesus, you give us access to the Father. So we come to you this morning, Father, and we ask that you would meet these needs all the needs that we have that we, may, we might not be aware of and the ones that we are aware of, that you would meet these great needs for us this morning and you would draw our attention to the ways that you've already met some of our greatest needs. I pray that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears, that you would help us meet you and experience you as you are today. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it has been an eventful morning today. Um, It's so, a lot of you, you just have the joy of kind of showing up on a Sunday morning and experiencing Sacred City Church, but there's a lot of work that goes into this. Uh, Set up, tear down, cottages, all kind of stuff. Um, I'm usually here a little early, but the Lord, for whatever reason, woke me up real early this morning, like 3.15, and wouldn't let me go back to sleep, so thank him for that. Uh, But then I get here and work in, and all of a sudden, I'd like to do some final tweaks on my sermon in the morning, just thinking through some things, and you're typing it up, and all of a sudden, boom, a transformer blows outside the, the cottages. Now, immediately, I'm like, whoa, that was a little while. But then, okay, I have two great fears in my life. One is that I get a phone call on Saturday evening saying, Justin, where are you? And I've forgotten your wedding, okay? That's one, all right? That's, your, that's one. I wake up with night terrors over that one, okay? The second one is that I lose my manuscript or my preaching notes, and I have to get up here and do this free without any notes, okay? That's a, that's a great fear. Now, just so you know, the they, United States of America, they, they asked, what's your greatest fears in life? Number two was death. Number one was public speaking, okay? So I get to do that every week, right? So when I heard this great explosion outside my window, I immediately realized I haven't saved my sermon, all right? But no, no worries. I did have, my adrenaline did spike for a little while, right? Um, But no worries. Praise the Lord and Steve Jobs. I had autosave, okay? (laughs) So we do have a sermon this morning. No worries. If it's bad, it's not because I lost my sermon. It's just because I wrote a bad sermon. (laughs) All right? Let me get into it this morning. Well, uh, one of my favorite 
movies of all time is Saving Private Ryan. Oh, you thought I was going somewhere else with that, didn't you? <laughs> I know where you thought I was going. Uh, it's got Tom Hanks and Matt Damon in it. Uh, the movie tracks a company of soldiers who have been tasked with finding and saving one man behind enemy lines during World War II. Now, as you watch this movie, each man in the company wrestles with the reality that they have been tasked with risking their own life to save one man. Now, most of them die in the process. The film shows the reality of the brutality of war, but it also shows the great love and sacrifice men can show towards their kinsmen, their brothers in arms. But for me, as I'm watching this movie, it caused me to ask myself, what does it mean to die for someone? Or what does it mean when someone dies for you? Now, I've been told all my life that Jesus died for me. But what does that actually mean? Like, where does it impact my day-to-day life? What does it mean in this flesh, day-in, day-out, nitty-gritty life? Well, this question that Tom Hanks' character, Captain Miller, gives, he gives his answer to this question at the end of the movie, if you remember. As he lay dying, emptying his firearm in the direction of an oncoming tank, Private Ryan runs to his aid, and he hears his last words while looking into the face of a man who just gave his life to save his. Captain Miller says two words as he's looking in his face. He says, earn this. Now, in that moment, Private Ryan was both given a great gift and a great burden. First, Jesus himself has said in John 15, 6, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Private Ryan was given a gift of love, a gift of brotherhood, a gift of sacrifice. He could now live on and experience the rest of life and have a family and do whatever he's going to do because his captain's sacrifice. So his captain gave up his life so that Private Ryan could continue his life. This was a great gift. But at the same time, it was also a great burden. Earn this. Don't waste this gift. Don't make my sacrifice of no account. Captain Miller is saying, I'm not doing this for anybody. I'm doing it for you. I'm not doing it so you can go out and become a drug addict and waste your life. I'm not doing it so you can go out and live like a moron the rest of your life. I'm doing this because I expect you to be somebody and pay back what I'm doing right now. Live your life in such a way that you could say you deserve this gift. You see, in the next scene, Private Ryan is an old man, and he's standing over Captain Miller's grave at the end of the movie, and his wife's with him, and his family's behind him, and he says this kind of quietly. He said, every day I've thought about what you've said to me, I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that I've earned what you've done for me. And his voice is cracking and he's quivering and you can tell there's uncertainty in his voice. You can tell he's just not really sure. Have I earned it? Have I lived up to it? He's been carrying this great weight his whole life. And you know what? Burdens sometimes, they are good, right? Young men, Carrying a burden is good. A truck runs straighter when it's carrying a load, right? So sometimes it's great to carry a burden and carry a heavy load and and get a job and put down roots and love a wife and make commitments and just forget about your, your video games for a while. It's good. But there's also sometimes that a burden is soul crushing and taxing and it brings all these question marks to our existence. Have I done enough? Am I a good enough man? Have I earned this? And so this uncertainty stirs in his soul and he looks at his wife and you can tell she has no idea that any of this has gone on in his life. It's it's been unspoken. 
And he looks at her and he says, tell me I've lived a good life. Tell me I'm a good man. See, he's in this moment looking for justification for the life he's lived. He needs reassurance from outside of himself that he's earned it. Tell me I've earned it. Tell me I've done good. Tell me I've made true to this man's word that I've actually lived up to the promise. Now here it is. As noble and as loving as what Captain Miller and his company of soldiers did for Private Ryan, listen, it's not the same thing as what Jesus has done for us. I know I used to think it was. And I kind of lived my life with a great burden of earn this. Go to school, earn it. Go to school and be the light. Go in school and be the representation. We, our language, be on mission to your friends. You've been saved. God died for you. Go earn it. Go live like it. But Jesus dying for us is different. And therefore, it's meant, we are meant to respond to it differently. It's unique. There's something special about it. Now, as strange, as strange as it sounds at first, the difference in what Jesus has done for us on the cross is actually first detected in his birth before we see it in his death. See, you cannot understand what Jesus has accomplished on the cross for us until you first understand the details of his birth. And now this is really important for us because today we're going to be talking about what the creed says, two lines. It says, I believe Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now what's interesting, if you go to our, in our society today, those two things are probably uh, hotly debated about Jesus. And most people, when they're thinking of Christianity, think those two things, what is, why would, those are junk drawer things. Just throw, who needs that, right? Jesus was a good man. He shows us how to be moral. And Jesus died for us and shows us how to be, you know, self-sacrificial. We don't, we don't, who cares that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary? That's kind of outlandish claims there. Pretty supernatural. I don't know if I really believe that. Well, the entire gospel hangs on those two things. We're going to get into it this morning. First, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Second, he was born of the Virgin Mary. We're going to take a look at both truths. First, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Well, what, what big deal is that? Well, we learned last week that Jesus was always, from eternity past, the Son of God. He was spirit and one with God. But the eternal son of God was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Luke 1.35 says it like this. The whole, he says, promises to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and conceive Jesus in your womb. Now this coming upon you is the same terminology that was used in Genesis 1, verse 2, where the Spirit of God hovered over the waters at the beginning of creation. That God, through the Spirit, is creating something new. Not in the exact same way as Genesis, but he's here creating a new humanity, something different that would come from the seed of the woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15 that we talked about last week. So the important thing to see here is that Jesus' father is God. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous fashion, and therefore he doesn't have a sinful nature like us. He isn't born sinful. He isn't born corrupted like we are. Jesus is God, and when he puts on flesh and he comes into the womb of Mary, he's God in Mary's womb. He never stops being God. He doesn't just hang up his God robe and step into humanity. He's always God. Hebrews 1.3 says it like this. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance. You get to see it. Okay? 
It's something you can see. You want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus. You want to see what God is like? Look to Jesus. We have all these confusing thoughts about what God is like because God is spirit. God knows that about us. We look, we can see there's power, there's creation, okay, but we don't know what God is specifically like. So God puts on flesh and comes to comes in Jesus, and now we can see what God is like. We look at Jesus. Keep reading. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And look, the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is God. Here's how the Nicene Creed states it. Now, the Nicene Creed is a little bit later than the Apostles' Creed. And basically, some heresies popped up, some different people saying, like, Jesus was like this. Or the big debate was Jesus is Jesus. When does Jesus stop? Is Jesus always God? Or does Jesus, you know, kind of like he was born a man, but then he grows into a God as he becomes mature and as he be, the Holy Spirit comes on and he gets baptized? Does Jesus become God? How does this work? How does this relate? And so the, the, the Nicene Creed, they take the Apostles' Creed and expanded it to clarify some of these things. And this is how the Nicene Creed says it. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Here's the word begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, true God, begotten, not made. Jesus didn't become God. He's always been the Son of God. Of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. You can see Hebrews 1.3 language there. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate. The word incarnate means put on flesh by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was, quote, made human. Now, here's where things get tricky. Again, we're going to go into this in a deeper fashion, I think, in the Porterbrook seminar that's coming up in a, couple, in a few weeks. Here's where things get tricky. Jesus is the eternal son of God who became human. He was divine and he added to his divinity his humanity. Divinity plus humanity. In theological terms, this is called the hypostatic union. Okay? The union of two distinct natures, divine nature, human nature, in one person. Therefore, we call Jesus the God-man. Now, this is, this, do I understand this? I, I would ascribe to this. I say, I believe this. Do I get how it works out? No. I'm going to show you why it's important in, the, in, in coming up. Listen, Jesus was not 50-50. Like Jesus had, like, I've had a truck that's, that's had two tanks of gas, Right? When Jesus runs on his humanity, then it runs out and he flips the tank and now he's running on divinity. Or sometimes he's on divinity and sometimes he's on humanity. No, no, he's not 50-50. Jesus is 100% God at all times. And after, when he's born, incarnate, puts on flesh, he's also 100% human at all times. Right now, as he stands at the right hand of the Father, he is 100% God and 100% human right now. Right? Now, okay, so divine nature, he gets from God. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. So he knows exactly what it's like to be God. He knows God intimately. He's got access into the inner place. He, he, he knows, you know, there's this inner circle of, of all the world that we all want to get into. Jesus lived in that inner circle. He is the heart of the universe. He is the meaning of life. He knows what it's like to be God and be with God from all eternity. But because he was born of the Virgin Mary, he receives a human nature from Mary. And there's a lot of debate on why this is specifically important, but most or many theologians believe that actual the sin, sin nature of humankind actually comes through the Father because of a thing called federal headship. Adam's sin was counted against him. Eve's wasn't necessarily. 
Adam could have stopped and said, hold on, we're going to repent here because she sinned first. But in the scripture, it over and over and over says because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's sin, because of Adam's sin. So we think that sin might be just passed down through the male line. And so God's, Jesus' father is God, so he doesn't get a sinful nature, but he does get a human nature from his mother Mary, and it's important that she is virgin because the conception is, of course, of the Holy Spirit. Now, what else is important about born of the Virgin Mary? Well, there's three important things to note about Mary. First off, her ancestry. If you follow the Old Testament, you know that the Messiah is promised to come through the seed of Abraham the nation of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the house of David. Mary, that's her, that's her line. That's her ancestral line. Therefore, Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament promises regarding the Messiah coming from Abraham, Israel, Judah, and David. Secondly, her condition. She was a virgin. Jesus wasn't a good man who was born just like every other good man and then grew into his divinity like every other world religion that has a human founder. They all kind of some, somehow reach enlightenment and become a guru and become some, some mediator and, and somehow you know, become divine. That's not the way it worked with Jesus. He was divine and then became man. Third, her relation to Christ. Mary was literally the mother of Jesus. Now, Jesus gets his human nature from, from Mary. Um, but it also, for me, I was thinking about this this week. It means Jesus had a sinful mother like us. Why don't you think about that? Hey, first off, parents, that should give us some hope. <laughs> he turned out all right. <laughs> right? Jesus had a sinful mom and he had a stepdad. Right? And... They had sins, they made mistakes, right? And Jesus turned out all right, right? Now, the other piece I want us to see, the big question I want to answer, okay, I know that's big, that's kind of like high theology, and we might be like, what? why is that even important? Well, let me answer that. This is why Jesus, having two natures, Son of God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Here's why it matters. Here's why everything kind of revolves around those two things. First, I'm going to give you three reasons. First, Jesus is the only able mediator between God and man. Now, this is how 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Now, what, why is there only one? Well, when you, when you want to have a mediation, what's a medi- what is a mediation? A mediation, there are two parties, right, that have issue with one another, right? They might be in a dispute, some kind of legal dispute. They're arguing, here, I have my rights, I have my rights, I think you violated my rights. There's two parties, and they need mediation. They need these things worked out in an equitable manner. So both of them gets their rights upheld, right? Now, I hate, I'm going to use this example. It's not probably a great example, but it's coming to my mind. In a divorce, right, very rarely does the husband and the wife both have the same lawyer, Right? Why? She wants her needs met. He wants his needs met. So they each get their own representative and they come together and they fight about it, typically. Right? And it's messy and it gets ugly. Right? If we are negotiating, well, I, I don't think I need to explain it any more than that. Here it is. Humanity and God are enemies because of our sin. Humanity has violated God's covenants, God's rules, God's statutes, has sinned against him, and therefore he has every right to wipe us off the planet if he wants. He's creator, he's sustainer, he's all these things. There's a breach in our relationship. And the problem is every human has sinned and is therefore under the condemnation of God, and so there's no human that can go before God that doesn't have his own guilt imputed to himself, right? So if no human can walk in, the, let, me, let me talk to you about all these humans. God would be like, you're one of them. <laughs> right? Sorry, it doesn't work that way. Right? So, and God has his side of the story too that needs to be represented. 
right? He's been violated. He's the creator of all things. He's the most glorious one in existence. And us humans that have been made his image have violated that. How dare we? You know, in a sense, it's like, violate, you know, it's like trying to go sit on the surface of the sun. We, you can't do that. Humans can't be in the presence of God. So what, how do we reconcile this scenario? Jesus Christ, the divine son of God, one with God, puts on humanity. Put, he adds to his divinity, his humanity, and becomes 100% man, and he's already 100% God. So Jesus can literally stand in the gap for us and mediate between sinful humanity and sinless God. He can stand there and be the mediator. Jesus, therefore, again, the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus Christ only make logical sense. There is no other divine son of God who became man. There is nobody who can stand in the gap and do this. All the other religions, nobody claims to be the son of God. They claim to be prophets and they can point the way. Jesus said, I am the way. He's the only mediator. Okay, secondly, I'm not, I could go on all day with that. Second one, there's this term in the Old Testament and it's called, the Hebrew, is, it's, it's called goel, G-O-E-L. We've translated kinsman redeemer or redeemer for short. And in ancient Israel, before there was insurance, before there were lawyers that could give you like legal rights of eternity, God appointed a statute that was called goel or redeemer. Here's what that involved. A goel was the person who is in nearest relation to yourself your brother, your uncle, if your father was still alive, your son. They were the nearest blood relative, okay? There was basically four functions of a goel. One, if for whatever reason you couldn't pay, let's say you got sick or you got hurt and you couldn't work and you couldn't pay your bills and you owed the landowner or you owed someone and they, they could come and they could take your possessions. They could take ownership back over your house or your land or your property. The goel, the, your first nearest blood relative, was the one that was meant to redeem you. He would step in and say, oh, 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 I will pay off his debt. Your brother, this was what he had to do or what he was, if he was a good one, he should do, right? He's going to fill the gap. He's going to pay off your debt so that you didn't get carried off or your stuff didn't get carried off. Secondly, if you, through, again, debt or misfortune, had to sell yourself into slavery, right? There was no credit cards. We don't think we're in slavery. But the borrower was always slave to the lender, right? We couldn't, go, you couldn't just swipe it. You had to say, okay, okay, I'm going to go. I'll be your slave for six months, for a year. Let me pay off my debt. If this happened to you, your redeemer was required to, again, buy you out of slavery, Pay off your debts for you. Third, if you were murdered, again, you couldn't call the cops, right? Couldn't call the FBI. No, if you were murdered, it was your redeemer's responsibility to avenge you. He was also called in the Old Testament the avenger of blood. Fourth, if you died and you had a wife and you had a family, it was your redeemer's duty to marry your wife, take care of her, and raise up either your children or give her children so that they could take care of her in the future. This was the responsibility of the Redeemer. We're going to study next. We're going to go into the book of Ruth, and you're going to see it kind of play out in the book of Ruth coming out in a couple months. Now, these laws show us three basic requirements of the Redeemer. First, the Redeemer often had to pay a price to redeem the person, right? Costs had to be paid. Secondly, they would often have to exercise like legal power of attorney. They'd have to step in and take authority. They'd have to execute judgment on things. And third, kindness was meant to be showed to the widow, the powerless. So when we get to the New Testament and Jesus gets called our redeemer, we see 
All these things which the law required in the Goel, the Redeemer in the Old Testament, we see they're united in one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus takes on flesh in the incarnation, he becomes to us our brother and our kinsman. He is now our closest blood relative. Jesus then, on our behalf, regains for us everything that we've lost in the fall by living for us and by dying for us. He then pays all our debts with his life and his death. And through his cross, he obtains for us an eternal redemption. He then sets us free from our captivity and slavery to sin. And he destroys our enemies and takes vengeance upon the devil. And lastly, he unites us to God the Father and an eternal covenant of marriage through grace. Let's read Hebrews chapter 9 where you can see a lot of these things get played out. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So we could do both things here. We could talk about Jesus as the mediator or Jesus as the redeemer because we see them both take place. Jesus is going into the presence of God, the inner place where God exists, where God is holy, where God's Shekinah glory is there. But the only way he can get there is by making a sacrifice. He doesn't make a sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament to give them temporary access through blood, goats, and all these different things. He goes there with his own blood the spotless blood of the Son of God as the mediator. He steps in and he secures for us an eternal redemption. Keep reading. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification, of how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inherit eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that, look, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So Jesus is our mediator. He's also our redeemer. He's done all the things of the Goel in the Old Testament. He stepped in as our brother, as our closest relative, and he said, let me redeem them. Let me buy them out of slavery. Let me make things right. Let me get their inheritance, this internal inheritance. Let me secure it for them. Okay? So you see Jesus paid the highest price to redeem us, his sinless blood. He rescued us from slavery to the devil by exerting his power and authority. And he has displayed his incredible love for us in purchasing the church to himself. Now, third, so first we have mediator. Second, we have redeemer. Third, Jesus as our sympathetic High priest. We're just going to flip our, page, our Bible back a little bit. Go to Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. Speaking of Jesus here, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. Now this is where, this is the most important part of my sermon. I'm going to tell you that right away. You might have geeked out in the first half, but... Here's where it hopefully comes from the head, goes from the head down to the heart. 
Jesus is our sympathetic high priest. Listen, the longer you live, the more you realize how hard living is. It's been said that all of us, every single one of us has to go through enough, has to go through enough difficulty in this life to kill us. All of us do. None of us get off this rock alive. We are finite creatures who suffer, experience pain, and feel terribly low sometimes. We find it incredibly difficult to resist temptation. We, we, we know we can't live without our cell phones. And yet many of us, our cell phones are, we're enslaved to our cell phones. We're enslaved to the pornography we can find on our cell phones. We're enslaved to the identity creation and the identity uh, constant need to sustain this identity through social media. We are scared of the thoughts of suffering. We are scared of the reality of death. Now, if you're under the age of 30, you probably don't think about it very often, but you will. The older you get, the more you think about it, the more you sense it. You go through a sleepless night, parents, having a baby wakes you up to this reality. Every college kid in this room, we love you, but when you tell us how busy and tired you are, <laughs> it's like a ping pong ball bouncing off a statue. You're like, mm -hmm, no, you're not. You don't know what it's like to be tired. And I know that sounds like kind of offensive and we don't validate your feelings, but it's just reality. <laughs> just wait. Have one sleepless night. And nobody cares. Nobody cares you had a sleepless night. Work still calls. You still go to work and have to perform. You still have to be a husband. You still have to be a wife. You still have to clean the house. You still have to take care of the baby. You still have to be a neighbor. You still have to pay the bills. Add a couple more sleepless nights onto that. You feel like, right, you could now interview, right, for The Walking Dead, right? <laughs> That's how you feel, right? I have nothing but grunts for you. You ask me something, <sighs> that's all I got, right? What is that? That's my finite nature, the flimsiness of this body that God's given me. Wake up and go to that coffee machine and grab that bag and realize it's empty. <gasps> now, I know we can just stop at six different places on the way to work, but if we didn't, see, many of us, right? I don't know, the Holy Spirit just doesn't work until I get coffee. The fruit of the Spirit begin to produce once I've had my coffee in the morning. The spirit works in the fertile ground of caffeinated Justin. That's where it works, right? We are finite. Or the, the crazy thing, some of you, again, young people, you don't even realize, I see you walking around with your monsters at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. I drive by Atomic and I see a line at 8 p.m. I'm like, oh, them, they're all young people in that line. Why? I have a touch of coffee, caffeine, coffee after 2 p.m., 3 a.m., I'm wide awake, ready to solve the world's problems. <laughs> Why? Our body is finite. It's so flimsy, and it can be affected by so many different things. The weather, the amount of sunlight we get, the amount of exercise we have, right? We are so broken. And here, it's in this body where I go, how could God ever understand what it feels like to be me? 
He didn't have my parents. Sorry. My mom and dad are here. <laughs> right? He didn't have my upbringing. He, didn't, he doesn't have my weaknesses. Right? Did Jesus get bullied as a kid? I don't know. Did Jesus have the same temptations and pulls that I have? I don't know, but I doubt it. I doubt God really knows what it's like to be me. See, this is where the doctrine, the heavy theology that I gave you in the first half of the sermon, this is where the doctrine of the incarnation is meant to go from our head down into our heart and answer these questions of the soul. Jesus, as our sympathetic high priest, it's so important for us to grasp. See, the Bible teaches that Jesus wasn't like Superman. Think about Superman. Bullets bounce off him, right? He can fly. If something happens he doesn't like, he can fly around the earth and change the direction and turn back time. Well, that would be nice. He could shoot lasers from his eyes. Now, I've got a mean dad glare, but that would be killer. (laughs) Superman has no weaknesses except, obviously, kryptonite. A rare rock from another planet. (laughs) So Superman is basically unstoppable and has nothing to fear. He isn't afraid of heights. He isn't afraid of being hurt. He doesn't know what it's like to stub his toe. He doesn't know what it's like to step on a Lego in the middle of the night. (laughs) He can't be robbed at gunpoint. He isn't worried about what's going on in the next room because he can see through walls. He isn't worried about getting sick. He's not nervous about cancer. I don't even think he ages. So he isn't afraid of growing old and weak. Therefore, Superman doesn't know what it's like to be us, to be fully human. I imagine the reality of Superman, he's trying to be, the word is, empathetic. See, there's a difference between sympathetic and empathetic. Sympathy and empathy. Empathy doesn't know what the feeling is like, but it's trying to feel it. So if you have, you know, if you, if you have, let's just say you, your, your mom is still with you and your friend's mother has died, you don't know what it feels like to lose a mother, but you're trying to put yourself in their shoes and empathize with them. Oh, man, I know it's got to be hard. I know it's got to be difficult. And you're trying to do that. That's good to empathize, but you don't know what it feels like. That's the way Superman has to look at humanity, kind of with his head turned like, hmm, I wonder what it feels like to feel like that. Oh, must be kind of hard. But Jesus sympathizes with us. That means he's not looking at us like a lab rat going, oh, feelings, how strange. I wonder what it's like to feel like that. No, no, no. Jesus has felt it in his flesh. He suffered like us. He knows what it's like to be fully human. And listen, also, so does God the Father. Because through Christ, they're one. Through Christ, God knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tired. See, in the, cre- in the creation story, when God rests, he doesn't rest because he gets tired. He rests because he wants to enjoy creation. He wants to create a rhythm that it's going to be work and rest. God doesn't need to rest. God just chooses to rest. But when we see God in the flesh of Jesus, Jesus now has to rest. Jesus pulls away from the crowd and goes to be with God because he needs rest. He needs to be restored. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry and have too many demands on him, and there's no way he can meet all the demands. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by those closest to him. 
Jesus knows what it's like to have a sleepless night. On the night where he chose his apostles, he was up all night long praying for them. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was there late at night praying, and his closest followers couldn't even stay with him and couldn't even stay awake. Jesus knows what it's like to be unjustly condemned. The authorities around him, religious authorities and the legal authorities conspired against him and literally destroyed the creator of the universe. There's nothing more unjust than that. He knows what it's like to be beaten and killed, of course, on a cross. Therefore, when we pray to God our Father, we don't have to explain to him what our suffering is like. He already knows and he sympathizes with us. Another scripture says he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. Not just intellectually. He's felt it. He's felt the sting of fear. He's felt the turmoil of inner anxiety. He's felt the dark night of the soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has felt it. So in our pain, we must remind ourselves of this deeply consoling thought. We have a God who knows and understands our weaknesses and we can go to him and we should go to him and we must go to him in complete confidence. It's not going to turn us away. Now, as I close this morning, I want to come back to our question. What does it mean that Jesus died for me? It means that Jesus came to be your mediator, to be your redeemer, to be your high priest. Listen, listen, listen. Not primarily your example. Jesus' last words couldn't be more different than Captain Miller's. Captain Miller said, earn this and laid a great weight of responsibility upon the shoulders of Private Ryan. Listen, in essence, that's called religion. It's obsessed with earning. Buddha said nearly the same thing on his deathbed. Buddha's last words were, strive without ceasing. I know there's a group of people in here that are getting into this kind of, how do I say this? There's this whole movement right now in our culture that is basically teaching this. Your salvation is found in striving without ceasing. The disciplined life, the hard life. That is a religion that's been around for a long time. Religion appeals to our senses. We want to earn it. We want to prove ourselves worthy. We want to separate ourselves from the pack and point behind us at those who couldn't hang and point at ourselves and say, I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I earned it. I made my way. I did it my way. That's not the way of Jesus. Where Buddha says strive without ceasing, and Captain Miller said earn it, Jesus on the cross says it is finished. And removes the great weight of trying to earn. Or many of us would say, well, I'm not trying to earn my salvation. No, no, no. You're trying to maintain your salvation. You're trying to keep it. You know you're saved by grace, but do you really think you're sanctified by grace? Do you really think that Jesus is what's holding you right now, secure in your salvation? Or is it you and your efforts and your quiet time and your devotion? All of it can feel like a great weight. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ says there was only one, one, one mediator. There was only one person who could redeem. There was only one perfect high priest. There was only one person worthy enough 
to earn salvation. And he didn't just earn his own salvation. He earned salvation for all of those who would ever call upon his name. That's why we sing his name is powerful. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There's only one. Where religion says, try harder. Jesus says, trust me. Where religion says, earn this. Jesus says, there's nothing left to earn. I've already earned it for you. Receive it by faith. Where religion says, strive without ceasing. The gospel says, stop. Receive. Rest. Worship. That's why the gospel is called good news. Religion is old news. Earn it. The gospel is good news. It's been earned. Receive it. And that's what we're going to do right now. For those of you in here, you're not currently trusting Christ. I ask that you would receive it this morning. You would see that his salvation his mediating, his redeeming, his high priesting. It was all for you. And you would say, Jesus, be that for me. I accept you. I receive you by faith. Help me believe it. And for those who have already put their faith in Christ, as we come to the table this morning, you would worship. Jesus came. Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was born the Virgin Mary. Jesus lived the perfect life and died the death that I deserve to get me back in right relationship with God. And as I come and I take the bread, this is the body of Christ, and I take the cup, this is the blood of Christ, I'm reminded that he died for me in a very special way, God, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus, would you communicate grace to your people through your body this morning for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.